Well, folks, this is the time of the show where we go out across the world and find someone who's making a difference. And you guys know that I love to talk to authors, since I'm one myself. And this week, we have a very special author joining us from Panama. Yeah, the country of Panama. And his name is Andrew Hallam. And he's written the book, Millionaire Teacher, The Nine Rules of Wealth You Should Have Learned in School. And we talked about this uh, a, a month or so ago on our show when I found this book. And, and I liked it so much and my staff loved it so much that I wanted to have the real author of the book on to talk from his own words what each chapter means or some of the chapters. And matter of fact, I liked the book so much I bought a copy for everyone in my company's organization. So I bought 20 copies and handed them out. And Thomas is uh, nodding his head near. Thomas, have you started to look at the – I mean, you guys like the book when I we talked about I started going it. through it. It's great. Okay. It's, uh, there, there's so little information out there that's uh, practical that anything that you can get your hands on is, well, is very is, valuable. This is like a owner's manual for the financial world, I think. And mm-hmm. so I've written some books, too. I like this book along with My Seven Baby Steps. I think these books are both really good. But without further ado, let's welcome Andrew in. Andrew, welcome in. Hey, thanks very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you guys uh, at least aren't turned off by a middle schooler's sense of humor, because that's basically all I've got, and that's about all I put into Millionaire Teacher. <laughs> well, people listen to the show. They appreciate a millionaire, a, a middle school sense of humor, because that's about what we do all the time. You even have the drum to go along with it. All right, so explain first why you're, why you're logging into the show from Panama today. What's going on in Panama? Hey, it's warm, for starters. <laughs> yeah. um, so my wife and I have been globally nomadic for about eight years. And so I, I grew up in Canada and I was a public school teacher there. And I took a year off in 2002 and just to travel. I decided I'm going to travel the world. I was super naive thinking I could see the world in a year. And, uh, and the principal of the school that I was at in Canada ended up getting a job at a, a private international school based on a U.S. curriculum, mostly American uh, students servicing mostly American families in Singapore. And uh, he said, you should apply for this job. So I took that job. It was fantastic. I taught high school English. And then eventually I taught uh, high school personal finance. And we thought we'd take a year off in 2014. We figured, let's take a year off, take a break, travel a little bit. And one year led to two, which has led to eight so far. And we're, we're enjoying it. We're, we're floating around all over the place. So Panama is where we currently are. But we don't tend to be in any one spot longer than uh, typically a handful of months. So when you do that, do you do you find uh, what? And I'm just using a, a term that I hear, Airbnb. Do you do you find little houses to rent, or how, how do you go about that when you're nomadic in retirement? Yeah, sometimes we do. Sometimes, like right now, we're staying at an Airbnb. Yep. And uh, and other times, like we'll we'll actually rent a place. So renting is far cheaper, of course. So. Uh, no middleman. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Panama's got, I mean, great value for your money. So right now we're on this, uh, we've got this place on the 35th floor with this spectacular ocean view. And uh, it's about a thousand, it would be if we were not doing the Airbnb thing, it'd be about a thousand dollars a month. And it has, you know, like a swimming pool on the top floor and it has a gym. And uh, it, it's, it's got this great gazillion dollar view. Like it's the most spectacular view I think I've ever seen from a from a building. It's incredible. You're talking about a thousand dollars a month. I know a guy who rented a place in Malibu, Airbnb. It was a thousand dollars a night. <laughs> it didn't have a pool. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so what a deal. You know, one, one of the things I, I, a lot of people have been trying to say, well, gosh, when I retire, I want my dollar to stretch further. So let me go to different countries. 
We heard a lot of people running to Mexico years ago, and Mexico still running to Mexico. The, the one complaint I hear is security. It's not the same safety feeling as we get in most neighborhoods here in America in Mexico. I don't know what Panama's like, and, but you have to know it's not going to be the same, but, but, and the food's going to be different too, but I guess, I guess you guys like that. You know what's interesting is it's uh, when you're looking at safety, it's generally regional. Um, so, yeah. you, you know, the United States is based on homicide rates per 100,000. It's actually pretty low. Right. And, and ironically, despite what we hear from the media, it's <laughs> safer to live in the United States now than it was in the 1990s wow. and the 1970s. But we don't we don't get that sense. Because doesn't we, seem you know, like we that. Does it? Media. You know, with the media. No, it doesn't. Well, the number one rule of media, and I know a lot of people in media, is if it bleeds, it leads. It leads. <laughs> so they get you to You're listen and watch, right. and they keep you there, and they keep it keep it filled with negative news, and and get you all yep. depressed in a half hour, and they've sold you a whole bunch of stuff like soap. Yeah, I mean, if you walk up and down Beer. the streets, you, you walk up and down the American streets, and you ask people like, uh, "Tell me about like homicide rate, gun 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 violence compared to how it was in the '90s and say the 1970s," they'll tell you it's way worse. Yeah. But if you yeah. look at FBI crime statistics on homicides per hundred thousand, it's it's safer. It's basically it's safer than it's ever been. And so obviously there's still issues. We still need to sort things out. But likewise, you know, when you get a place like Mexico. Homicide rates pretty high, but again, it's really regional. So you've got the the port cities that are dangerous, the, the cities up by the U.S. border that are dangerous. Right. Anything where you've got you know drug movements back and forth. Right. Right. But there are pockets that are relatively safe. Having said that, Panama is another level. So Panama is far safer than Mexico. And with Panama, you can drink water out of the tap. It costs <laughs> a little bit more to live in Panama or to be in Panama than yeah, it does for. to be in Mexico. But yeah. you know we're you know, the more I travel, guys, the more I realize I don't know. And the more I realize, yeah. like, I have to keep, I have to keep learning. I, I'd never been here before, and um, and I'm liking it. We're having a really good winter, uh, winter here in Panama. Well, what I say in the financial world, it's not the information that's out there. It's where you're getting the information. So if, if you're getting it from a biased source, guess what? It's going to be biased. <laughs> so that's why we talk about in, in the financial world how important it is to deal with a fiduciary planning firm that has access to risk and safety so you can put that proper plan together. Now, let's look at your rule number one in your book is spend like you want to grow rich. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, you know, many people think that wealthy people spend gobs of money and that's you know that's what you'll see on on television and you might read that in a, in a flashy magazine and such but the, the truth is that wealthy people spend far less than we often think they do especially when we're looking at depreciating assets like you know like vehicles uh it's it's really interesting looking at uh i mean thomas stanley wrote about this in the millionaire next door when he first published that book in 1996 and he continued his research and then in 2019 a few years after his death he was unfortunately killed in a uh, an automobile accident he uh, his daughter who he had been working on a new book with ended up continuing the research and and publishing a book called the next million next door yep. and what that book showed was that the median price paid for uh, a median price that the typical American millionaire paid for their latest car was $35,000. Now, now, what's so interesting is this. Now, so my wife and I have a condominium, and there are 40 units in this place. And and of my neighbors, you know, 39 neighbors there, it's in, it's in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And if I go down into the parking area and I look around at the vehicles, 
I would say that probably the majority of those vehicles are worth more than $35,000, but I'd be surprised if any of the people driving them are actually millionaires. Yeah, so that means they're spending all their money on depreciation, depreciating assets, which is not the, the proper recipe, is it? You know, it's not. You know, it becomes the norm because when you see other people doing it, like your neighbors are doing oh, it, yeah. this just becomes what people do. Face and numbers. so you start thinking, because <laughs> ah, everyone else is doing it, it's got to be at least normal, if not healthy, it's normal. You don't even think of it as unhealthy. But, no. you know, we do. We have this, uh, I think, an unhealthy, most of us culturally have an unhealthy relationship with, uh, I think, our desire to acquire stuff, uh, depreciating assets. And often we borrow money to get them. Well, I don't know if they have this bias yet. There's like uh, familiarity bias. It's all the biases. But what about the wealth bias? So you're biased because you want to look wealthy. That's what people buy. You know, when you and I don't know if your parents ever told you this. My dad never told me anything to spank. But mom would say, well, like if I came home and I did something wrong in school. And I said, well, mom, everyone else was doing it. And she would say, if everyone else was jumping off a cliff, would you do it too? And I would say no. And so that's what happens here. You see everyone else blowing money and you decide, well, if they're doing it, I can do it too. But the smart people, the rich people, they're hiding in plain sight. And in your book, I learned a term. I, I, I'm honest. I didn't know this term. The DECA millionaire. And Thomas knew right. that. When I, when, I asked, when I asked the guys when we were doing the show and that no one had seen the book yet, I said, what's a DECA millionaire? And Thomas, Thomas knew it. But <laughs> and then, and then, well done, Thomas. Yeah. And then one final point of that, and I want you to talk about this, but, but in that DECA millionaire chapter in the book, and again, it's chapter one, you talked about Warren Buffett in 2006 spent $55,000 on a Cadillac. The funny thing is, in 2005, I spent about that on the same Cadillac. I got a Cadillac, Cadillac SRX, which was the Hearst kind of one. It was a station wagon. I really loved that car. So I feel like Warren Buffett today. <laughs> but Warren Buffett, could buy, he could buy million-dollar cars, and he's sitting there buying, a, and it's still a lot of money, but $55,000 Cadillac. Now explain the DECA millionaire kind of philosophy and what gets people there and keeps them there. Well, it's really spending, spending less on depreciating assets like cars and thinking more about spending like a millionaire. And that millionaires actually don't typically dine out at really exclusive resort, uh, really exclusive restaurants on a daily basis, for example. Most millionaires don't own Rolex watches. Most millionaires don't go around buying extravagant jewelry or fancy brand name purses. And that's a total irony. Um, you know, if we were to grab the people that end up buying really expensive jewelry, really expensive purses, and really expensive cars, and we were like to corral them all into a room, like we took, you know, I don't know, we found like a thousand of them. You went into an upscale parking lot, you found all these people that had these really high-end vehicles, and you, you, you jammed them all into a room, and you gave them truth serum, and you're actually to ask them like. Uh, how much money do you actually have? You'd find that most of them had really high salaries. So, you know, they might be doctors and lawyers and people that end up earning a lot of income, but they're typically people that have low levels of wealth. That doesn't mean that there aren't rich people who end up driving really expensive cars. There are, but most rich people don't. So it's a great way of reframing things because, you know, what you're not spending on an expensive vehicle, if you choose not to, you can put towards investing for your future. Yeah, you can put towards donating money to charitable causes. You can put towards potentially taking time off uh, a, a form of sabbatical to spend time with people you love and enjoy some really cool experiences. And generally speaking, you know, we don't get a lot of satisfaction 
We think we do beforehand, but we don't get a lot of satisfaction from material acquisitions. Buyer's we think remorse. We do. Remember that term? Exactly. Buyer's remorse. That's what happens, too. You say, gosh, the little, the little voice inside you said, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Even though it felt good for the first couple minutes or first couple days, buyer's remorse kicks yeah. in when you realize you made a mistake. Hey, Andrew, this has been a fascinating interview. Do you have time? Can we hold you over one more segment to talk more about this same book here? I'd be thrilled to. Okay, folks, we'll be right back after this.